So 1 Samuel chapter 15. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Telim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Kenites, go away, leave the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with a sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honour and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you, I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleating of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission, saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you not pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. 
the soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe, and it tore. Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, and has given it to one of your neighbours, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. Saul replied, I have sinned, but please honour me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back with Saul, and Saul worshipped the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites. Agag came to him in chains, and he thought, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel left for Ramah, but Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Amen. Sir, to keep you mindful of the law and the gospel of God as the rule for the whole life and government of Christian princes, receive this book, the most valuable thing that this world affords. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. Those were the words spoken to Charles III yesterday as he received a copy of the Bible. Before vowing to maintain the laws of God, the true profession of the gospel, um, and before he was anointed with oil as king. Will he keep his vow? Will he listen to the word of God? Will he rule as an obedient servant of God? Well, we're not here this morning to think about King Charles, but as we move into a new era of British history with a new king 
on the throne, we're starting a series in the Old Testament books of 1 and 2 Samuel, going back over 3,000 years to the time of the very first kings anointed with oil in God's name, Saul and David. And today we're jumping into the middle of the story of Israel's very first human king, Saul. To give you some context, for hundreds of years before Saul, God's people, the Israelites, had lived without a king because they already had a king, God, the king of kings. And so they didn't need anyone else ruling over them. Yet wanting to be more like the nations around them who did have kings, the Israelites rejected God as their king and asked the prophet Samuel to appoint a human king for them. And even though the people had sinned against God by asking for a king, God graciously granted their request and chose a king for them, Saul. Now Saul was physically impressive, we learn he's tall and handsome, but he was from the least important tribe of Israel, the tribe of Jacob's youngest son, Benjamin. He was basically a nobody. And in fact, he was so shy that when Samuel announces that he's going to be king in front of all the people, nobody can find him because he's gone off and hidden. However unlikely he may have seen, though, Israel had a human king. But as Saul is set over the people as king, the prophet Samuel gives this warning. This is um, Samuel's warning as he's um, crowned, if you will, the Lord. And if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. If the people and their king will obey God, then God will bless them. But if they don't obey God, then God's hand will be against them. Not only will he not protect them, he will actively bring about their downfall. So the questions everyone's asking as Saul is coronated are the ones we might be asking about Charles. Will he listen to God's word? Will he rule as an obedient servant of God? And as we come to this passage this morning, just as the Israelites were called to serve and obey God along with their king, we have to ask ourselves the same questions. Will we listen to God's word? Will we live as obedient servants of God? Well, let's get into the story. Open up your Bibles again if, you, if you've closed them. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Let's look down at verse 1. The prophet Samuel, he's an old man by this point, comes to King Saul and he gives him a command from God. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. Listen to this message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. When the Israelites had left Egypt in the Exodus a couple of hundred years previously, a people called the Amalekites had attacked them and preyed on the weak of the group who were lagging behind. And because the Amalekites had opposed God and opposed his people, God commanded the Israelites in Deuteronomy 25, when the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land he is giving you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. 
for the defiance of the Amalekites against God and their attempt to oppose his people. God promised he would wipe the entire people from the face of the earth. And here he's finally going to bring that about through his anointed king, Saul. So he commands him, kill all of them. Men, women, children and infants, along with their animals. What do you make of that? What do you think Saul made of it? It is a terrifying command. And I think we're supposed to be stopped in our tracks as we read this, at the totality of the destruction. To realise just how seriously God takes sin, that he would wipe this entire nation off the map for their rebellion against him. To shine a light on just how far our priorities fall short of God's. As we, I imagine, most of us go, really, God? Isn't that just a bit far? Well, the answer as we read the whole Bible is, is no, it's not too far. God is so perfect, so holy, that he will not stand even the slightest scent of sin. And one day he will totally destroy all those who are still tainted by it. And by nature, that includes all of us, men, women, and children. There is no one who does good, no one who seeks God and obeys him. Without the death of Jesus on the cross, taking the destruction that we deserve upon himself, none of us could stand in God's presence. By nature, we all deserve to be among the Amalekites, If we think God is going too far here, it's because we fail to see the seriousness of our own sin, of our own rebellion against God. However hard it might be to understand, God's decree to Saul here is just. Now, I don't want you to mishear me. Terrible things have been done in more recent centuries by human rulers who have aimed to follow the model of the Old Testament kings. In the Old Testament, God brought about his judgment on sin through human rulers. But since the coming of Jesus, that is no longer the case. One day, God will bring judgment on sin. Jesus, the true, perfect king, will completely destroy all those still opposed to him, who have not been washed clean by his blood. But until then, Christians must not aim to bring about God's judgment on sin through war or crusades or revenge. Paul tells us in Romans, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. No, as those who seek to obey God today as Christians, our battle is not against the Amalekites. But as God's anointed, beloved, redeemed children, there is a war against sin that we are commanded to fight. We could go to many places in the New Testament to see this, but in Colossians 3, we're told, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Or Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, if your right eye causes you to stumble, 
gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Just as Saul was not to leave a single trace of the sinful Amalekites alive, so too our sin is so serious that we are commanded to put it to death, to cut it out. And the question for both Saul and us is, will we obey? Well, let's go back to the passage. Let's see what Saul does in response to God's command. If you look down at verse 4, it looks good to start with. He gathers a vast army, 210,000 men. That's more than the um, number of invading troops at D-Day. Just what you need to wipe an entire people off the face of the earth. He then moves another group of people out the way, the Kenites. So clearly Saul is planning on doing this properly, not having anyone other than those who God has commanded him to kill among the, um, the victims. And then, verse 7, he attacks the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur. Now, we're not entirely sure where Havilah is, but it's a long way. It all seems to be going well. But then, have a look at verse 8. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. don't remember that being part of God's command. He destroys all the people, but he spares the king. And then, verse 9, he's also spared the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. You and I may have wanted to spare the women and the children, but for Saul and his army, it's the beef and the lamb. And you can imagine their conversations. They've slaughtered the Amalekites, just as God commanded, and now they're utterly exhausted. And as the sun starts to set, they come across the fields of the Amalekites, thousands upon thousands of top-quality livestock, succulent, well-fed lambs, the tenderest grass-fed beef, Not only an incredible feast, but a fortune worth of produce. Did God really say, put to death the cattle and sheep? What a waste. I understand the people, they're sinners, but why the animals? Surely God would want to reward us for our obedience in destroying the Amalekites. And besides, we can offer them to God as a sacrifice first before we eat them. And so... Despite God's clear command, they spare the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat calves and lambs. And so often we can do exactly the same as Saul and his men. We know exactly what God wants, how he's told us to live, put to death anything sinful in us, cut out all sin, but we don't let God have everything. Well, Jesus, I'll I'll happily try and live live for you in most areas of my life, But not when I'm with this particular group of friends. That's just too hard. Or not when I'm with my parents. They're really difficult. Or not when I'm in my room alone. Or maybe I'll try to obey you with my words, my actions, even with my money. um, But I'll do what I want with my eyes. You can't control what I think about. Or, okay, Jesus, I'm with you on treating others as um, I wish to be treated. Murder, yeah, okay, that's obviously bad. But your rules on sex and marriage seem a bit outdated. I think I'll live how I want to live in that area. We compartmentalize our lives and God's commands and refuse to surrender it all to his rule. But God demands our and Saul's full obedience. And here Saul doesn't give it. You can have the people, Lord, but I'm keeping the sheep and cattle for myself. 
And so what happens? Look down at verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. After numerous warnings that God's king must obey, Saul has turned away from following God. And it grieves God. He's not rubbing his hands with glee, saying, I told you, sir, you asked for a king, now look what you've got. No, he regrets that he makes, he's made Saul king. Not that he wished he hadn't made Saul king, that's how we might use the word regret, because look at verse 29 later on in the passage. He who is the glory of Israel, that's God, does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. No, choosing Saul as king, knowing he would disobey, was always God's plan. But still, he is grieved by Saul's disobedience. Just as Jesus stood at Lazarus's tomb and wept, knowing full well that he was about to raise him from the dead, so here, despite knowing that Saul would de- disobey, he feels a deep sorrow at his disobedience. And so does Samuel. He's angry and he cries out to the Lord all night. But how will Saul react? Samuel goes to find him, and he's told that Saul's gone up and set up a monument in his own honour, not exactly the humble servant king he was supposed to be. And then when Samuel finds him, what does he find? A sheepish, sorrowful Samuel, Saul, sorry, with his tail between his legs? No, Saul doesn't even realise there's a problem. He comes up to Samuel, barbecue sauce around his mouth, having, some, having had some grilled lamb chops and steak, And he says, look at verse 13, the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. And Samuel's thinking, okay, what were his instructions again? Destroy the Amalekites, everything that belongs to them, men, women, children, infants, camels and donkeys, cattle and sheep. Saul's nodding along. Okay then, Saul, verse 14, what's that mooing I can hear? What's that bar sound? And Saul starts defending himself, and he blames his soldiers, just as Adam blamed Eve in the Garden of Eden. The soldiers spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord, your God, not his God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Then Samuel puts it to him plainly in verse 17. Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission, saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? And Saul defends it again. I did obey the Lord. Despite Samuel laying out the command in front of him, the mooing cows stood right there, Still, he insists he's being obedient. And there's a danger that we treat our own disobedience like this. Those areas of our life, those parts of the Bible that we're so used to ignoring, so used to not surrendering to God, that we convince ourselves there's nothing wrong. We're great at seeing specks in other people's eyes, but we fail to see the logs in our own. We go around saying, the Lord bless you, I've carried out the Lord's instructions. 
but we've still got the metaphorical barbecue sauce around our mouth. Well, back in the passage, the final judgment on Saul is given in verses 22 to 23. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Saul, you can do all the religious things you want, offer as many sacrifices as possible, but if you're going to live a life of rebellion against God, what use is it? Disobeying God, rebelling against him, is as bad as divination, that's trying to learn about the future through the ancient equivalent of tea leaves or tarot cards or horoscopes. Arrogance, deciding you know better than God, is as bad as worshipping other gods. And Saul has done both. He's rebelled, and despite God raising him up from nothing, he's acted arrogantly, setting up monuments in his own honour, deciding for himself what he will and won't obey. And so God rejects him as king. And at this point, Saul finally repents. I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave, them, uh, gave in to them. Fearing people rather than God. Worrying about his own reputation rather than his obedience to God. But it doesn't seem like a sincere apology All he really seems to want is not to lose the respect of his people and not to be um, deposed as king. It's like if you're having a huge argument with your parents, refusing to apologise to them until they say you're grounded. And then suddenly you start grovelling, oh, I'm I'm so sorry, please don't ground me. It's not the offence against God that seems to bother Saul here, but the fact that he's no longer going to be king. And in fact, we know this repentance isn't sincere because, as we'll see in the coming weeks, Rather than accept God's judgment that he's no longer king and live as an obedient servant who is not a human king, he holds on to the throne and does everything he can to kill God's newly chosen king, David. Obedience to God is to be the mark of God's king and of God's people. And those who continue in unrepentant disobedience or the sort of repentance in name only, a fingers crossed, please don't send me to hell sort of repentance, will be rejected by God. In Matthew 7, Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many many miracles, and in your name, offer the sheep that we took, even though we were told to kill them. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Saul disobeyed God and refused to truly repent of his sin. And so in verse 28, God will tear the kingdom from him and give it to one of his neighbours. To one better than him. In the coming weeks, we'll, we'll meet this new and better king, David.
David. But we'll also see that he'll disobey God too. And while he will repent from a place of genuine heartfelt sorrow and receive true forgiveness, he doesn't turn out to be the expected obedient servant king that the Old Testament promises. Ultimately, the books of 1 and 2 Samuel and their sequel, 1 and 2 Kings, end in disappointment, longing for a king who will obey God completely. Well, around a thousand years later, God the Son would come to earth in the person of Jesus, an heir to the throne of David, as the only king, the only man, to see the true seriousness of sin, to always act with justice, to always obey the will of his Father, even being willing to die on a cross for us to deal with the problem of our sin in the ultimate act of obedience ending the cycle of flawed human kings and reigning forever as God's true anointed king. Because Jesus is king, because Jesus obeyed, we can be blessed despite our disobedience. We can come to him in genuine sorrow and repentance for our disobedience and know for sure that we are completely forgiven. Because Jesus is king, because he has written his law on our hearts by his spirit, we can, by the help of his spirit, obey him and live lives that please him. So will we obey God's word? We have it here in our Bibles, the most valuable thing that this world affords. Will we live as obedient children of God? Will we surrender our whole lives to him? Let him rule over everything? Will we put to death those parts of our lives that we have not submitted to him? Will we let God search out those sins that we've become so comfortable with that we don't even see as a problem? Well, why don't we spend a a minute now in silent prayer thinking about those things with God, allowing him to point out those areas of our lives, and then I'll close us. One John 1 says this, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Lord Jesus, thank you for living and reigning as the true obedient king. I pray that we would all let you point out those areas of our life that we have not surrendered to you, that we would live as pleasing children of you, 
that we would want to do your will in everything. In your name we pray. Amen.